Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, uh, where we have conversations about church, culture, theology, and life for the sake of the faithfulness of the church in the world. Uh, I'm Derek Rishmaui, as usual, and we have Alistair Roberts, Andrew Wilson, and once again, we are joined by Matt Lee Anderson, who on this episode will be introducing the subject for our discussion. Matt, take it away. Yeah, so... uh Recently, there's been a bit of a dust-up in the conservative evangelical world uh, in the States, as is probably well-known, Tolian uh, Chavidian has left the Gospel Coalition, and it's all been a little nasty, uh, seems rather unhappy. Um, we have no interest, I have no interest actually at all in any of the personality issues or any of the, really, the, the underlying dynamics about that whole situation. What's been fascinating to me about the whole business is uh, that th there's a lot of concern about Tolian's understanding of sanctification. And I haven't read his books. Um, I've read his blog and am somewhat familiar with what he's done. Um, but there's, there's, it's, my understanding is he's got a view of sanctification that seems to privilege, uh, that, that doesn't leave much room for uh, participation as it were, in uh, practices uh, that would reform one's character as a part of the sanctifying process. Now, this is obviously um, very controversial, and it's been very controversial. So we thought that we'd talk about just the, the doctrine of sanctification generally and how to construe it. But guys, what I'm really curious to find out from you first, straight in, is what is it about um, this doctrine or, or what is it about right now that you think has made this so controversial? Like, is there something in the water that we're all drinking that has made uh, sanctification a particularly difficult issue for us to understand and integrate these days? A lot of Orthodox Reformed guys aren't very happy. <laughs> um, is one of my claims. Um, and there can be an intensity and a lack of personal visible liberty and express joy even among people who talk a lot about joy and even among people who talk a lot about the gospel they don't actually look like it's they don't look like it's very good news and i think probably there is a sort of confluence of a, a charismatic and experientially influenced stream that's more available to interact with reform streams uh, in the last 20 years partly through the internet partly through demography and i think that's made the the happiness of some people who have a much what might look like a slightly simpler less union with christ the more propositional and forensic gospel but nonetheless leads to saying i'm completely free and it's all been done i don't have to do anything actually seems like an incredibly liberating message and i think part of the reason why that's attractive to many people is because the people who are preaching what i might regard as a more theologically accurate version don't look very happy about it you know what, Andrew? I resemble that remark, so I'm going to take offense. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> One of the interesting things, though, is is you've got these two pushbacks. You've got this. You've got two dynamics at work. One is the the general moral incomprehension, the idea of sanctification, just because of the 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 moral status of of the country or, or the modern West. Like, wait, I have to get better. And then there's the fact that the, I think the general moralism that happens in a lot of, I think, um, evangelical churches. And again, there's also the, the cheap grace element that happens in a lot of evangelical churches. And so there's, 
I think in my mind, there's the cultural challenge of holiness. There is the church cultural challenge of simultaneously moralism and legalism. I think both happen in the churches. I think you'll see them both. I think if you want to go ahead digging for them, you can find tons of churches and have a lot of examples of both phenomena going on. And so in my mind, I see both sides pushing against real issues, maybe not in the way they frame. Like, again, I don't want to get into the personality elements here. Um, but I think that there's an element of, yeah, man, there's a lot of cruddy legalism. I've seen it as a pastor. And there's a lot of just ridiculous licentiousness where there's just no idea that, oh, wow, I have to actually kind of start to look like Jesus. What's well, crazy? Uh, and I've seen that too. So um, that's just my three cents. Uh, Alistair? I think following on from your points, there's a a great force that the doctrine of sanctification has as an experiential and pastoral truth. And it has a different force in different contexts. For some contexts, it's the truth of liberation from legalistic requirements of fundamentalism or whatever it is. In other contexts, there's a sense of the joy of the law, that we are set free to love God's law and to um, find freedom and direction within it. And the force that it carries within those different contexts shouldn't necessarily be put at odds. But in a collapsing of contexts in the context of the Internet and other mass media today, often those two pastoral emphases, which are really important within particular contexts, can come into conflict with each other. Whereas within a more integrated and multifaceted doctrine, they wouldn't necessarily have to. Um, and often I think people can take one particular aspect of the doctrine and so run with it. Um, into extremes that denies that will deny another aspect of it that is equally important and biblical. Okay, so let me put my own thought out there, if that's all right, if I can do such a thing. Um, We'd love that if you yeah, could. Do such yeah, a thing. thanks. You're going to get it one way or the other. You don't have much of a choice here. Um, so within the states, within the evangelical community in the states, probably the most pervasive doctrine or, or mode of reflecting about the Christian life in the past five years has been David Platt's conception of being radical. Um, that, that the sort of extreme commitment, you know, that the, the, the reaction against the American dream, uh, and I've written about it a ton and everyone's sick of hearing me go on about it. But what's interesting is that's been, that's been accused of being legalistic, right? That's been accused of, in one sense, being disconnected from gospel proclamation, from the very um, sort of liberating news. And what Platt is trying to do, understandably, is wake up middle America, you know, suburban Americans from their slumber and get them to realize that something's really at stake here. Um, Tolian seems to be going the other direction and rooting the gospel in a proclamation and, and in one sense, wanting to disconnect it from the radical. I, I mean, these are two very deep currents and they're totally disconnected. And I guess what I wonder is conceptually, are there structural reasons in people's conception of the, the gospel? Are there structural reasons in our understanding of what faith is or maybe what repentance is that lead to this kind of bifurcation that result in these attenuated ways of actually integrating the gospel into our daily lives? I'm not sure Tolkien would push that hard against whatever, or that Platt 
would push that hard in the way. I mean, I, I know you're the expert. You wrote about it. But what I will say is I thought it was interesting. This last couple of years, um, I read a book by J. Todd Billings called Union with Christ, Reframing Theology and Ministry for the Church. What he was basically was presenting was a classic reformed, um, or at least drawing from Calvin, a view on on a whole host of issues drawn from the for the perspective of the doctrine of union with Christ. And, and when it came to the gospel, the issue was the double gift. Like, so Calvin has this conception of the double gift of on the front end, you have forgiveness and justification, as well as the second gift of the Holy Spirit and, and the sanctifying spirit. And you receive both as you're united by faith uh to Christ. And so that was news for me in a sense. I'd, I'd, I'd seen both. I knew that we get the Holy Spirit. I knew that free forgiveness and justification. And, and in a sense, for me spiritually, one of the most liberating things was finding out, oh my gosh, forgiveness and free justification. But then getting to that point where, where okay, I know I'm a sinner. I know there's nothing I can do to be saved. There's no, I know that it, it's all been done for me. But then there comes that, that point where I realized but there's still these commands and there's still holiness. And we do get the Holy Spirit who does enable and empower us to look more like Christ. That's also something significant. And I don't know if that was a little bit random there, but you guys, I don't know what you're, you're hearing on this. <laughs> well, I've taken the floor too much. I'm, I'm very curious to hear what Andrew, Andrew has to say. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how new a thing this is. Um, I think... I think the the two theological tensions which are obviously at work are the the faith and work thing, which is an, an early New Testament thing, and the inaugurated the inaugurated eschatology. So, how much is this already done, and how much of it is being worked out now, is one of the polarities. Whether they use language of inaugurated eschatology or not, that goes right back to Paul and right back to the proclamation of the kingdom. And the kingdom is here, and it's not yet, and it will come. And now it's in you. And come on, guys, get your head together. And the guys are all sitting there scratching their heads, saying, "I don't see this." And the same thing happens to, to that degree in Paul, and it, it, the very sort of realized eschatology of Ephesians and the more futurist one of, of 1 Corinthians. And then you have the same uh, kind of polarity which takes place between James and Hebrews on the one side and Paul, apparently, or at least bits of Paul on the other, in what happens if you don't. Um, and so I think if you don't persevere and don't live in the good of who you are, so Paul just says, be who you are, and then there's always that lagging question, yeah, but if I'm not, how far can it go and what happens then? And I think both of those polarities go right back to the first generation of the church, because I think they're all both ands. So I think as, that's not an original observation, of course, but I don't think that what we're seeing in that sort of be really radical on pulling in one direction. And I don't know how, how much animus they would be or how much opposition there would be between people who would say, let's be radical and let's preach the radicality of free grace. I think probably there may not be, as Derek says, there may not be that much opposition between them, but... The, the currents underneath them, I agree with Matt, are quite strong, and they do pull in different directions. But I don't think that's new. I think both of those things have been there since the first generation of the church. Why that's emerged in the last 10 or 15 years in a very obvious way, I mean, I don't know. It's sweet, huge success of books like Crazy Love, which I thought was a, a, a really, you know, nearly 10 years back, really big sort of push against the now you've been saved, you don't need to do anything. Probably a, a right sort of self-conscious swing against the moralistic therapeutic deism kind of passive just drift along through life american dream thing as you've said um so i think there's probably some trends that have brought it to the fore but again i think a lot of that is just people are consuming media from all over and so theological 
distinctions that used to not really talk to each other um, in schools that didn't talk to each other are now having open conversations about lots of these things and people are being influenced by both. But I think both of those polarities, the now and not yet and the faith and works thing, go right the way back to the first 20 years of the church. So I, I'm not sure it's that newer development, theologically speaking. Okay, okay, so I really want to hear from Alistair on this. But before that, I really want to push back <laughs> at, um, because don't you think, and, I'd, and, and, and I'm going to say this first because I'd like to hear Alistair's take on this as well. Don't you think that we struggle to articulate what faith and repentance are in ways that capture um, how meaningful they are without it dissolving into this faith and works discussion? So, I mean, in Romans 4, which is probably the chapter of the Bible that I know best in this world, um, in Romans 4, I mean, the, the faith that uh, Paul speaks of is a, is a faith that uh, is in a God who brings being out of non-being, right? The faith that saves is, in one sense, it's the same faith that uh, opens up Sarah's womb, that brings life where there isn't life. It's, it's a really radical, in, in that sense, really sharp, uh, overwhelming type of faith. But once you start speaking of, of faith in more robust ways, you start, I think, having to end up talking about the practices of faith that are, in one sense, necessary signs of that. And then, you know, you're, you're, you're down the pit, this morass of this faith and works conversation, where folks are just going to raise hackles about whether or not you're adding works unto your faith or not. So it seems like there's a really thin understanding of repentance and faith that has actually exacerbated this problem and made people really quick to run to the faith works issue in ways that they should. Yes, I think that Matt is right on that. One of the things I wonder about here is that often the relationship between faith and works is there's a tension there that's mediated by particular models. So whether we talk about law and gospel or whether we talk about something like union with Christ, these are models that are, have a sort of architectonic priority within our systems of thought. And mediating that particular tension with those models, if one attacks a particular point on sanctification, it would seem as if our whole model is, at, is under threat. And I'm not sure that's the case, but it's often very hard to distinguish between where our model ends and where the strength of scripture begins. And often I think that we're confusing those two things. And the tension is really between underlying models and their sense of being under threat at particular points. Um, and that reconciliation of faith and works, for instance, in Romans 4 is that brought up. I think it's interesting the role that Abraham plays within that passage as our father that there's a sense of Abraham as a vicarious character, that we are justified in him and um, as his children, but also we are those who walk in his footsteps. And that, exploring that sort of relationship, that relationship that we have to Abraham as someone who operates in our stead or as our representative, and also Abraham as someone whose children we are, who we take after and who we are modeled after. And it's these, the models where, with which we give account of that sort of relationship. I think it's in those that we often find the tensions being worked out and the, the antagonisms between the different systems. I'm not sure I'm explaining that very well, but perhaps Matt would like to um, take up the point. Well, 
Well, well, look, I mean, here's, here's a very simple question that I think many people struggle to answer that I think is essential in this debate. How do I know if I have genuinely repented of a sin? I, yeah, it's really hard to, I, I think it's really hard to answer that question without looking at structural conditions that I have uh, examined in my life and made genuine changes to um, yeah. that, you know, that are going to keep me from the very sin which I had committed in the past. I think there's something, it, you know, I recognize my, I'm forgiven. I recognize that the blood of Jesus covers me. Um, but repentance is, it's, it's, it's a really rich, robust, difficult concept to get my head around. And I think that's a question that many people in the pews probably have if they don't, but they may not realize it. And I, it seems to me if we can't answer that question in a really robust way, we haven't properly uh, integrated our, our, our conception of sanctification with our understanding of justification rightly. So I'm, I'm going to chime. I'm going to chime in here from just. Okay, I've been preaching at college kids for three years, and that's been interesting. I remember the front end of my preaching. A lot of it, guys. He's done it all. Grace. There's not a thing you can do. You have to understand grace, and if you understand grace, well, then that liberates your heart. You your affections are turned. You turn towards Christ. You let go of idols, and the, getting to the underlying root motives of sin was very significant is if you see what Christ has done for you, you understand all that. Well, then that prize, the, the claws of your heart off of idols onto God and then onward towards godliness. Now I hit that and it's true and I believe it. I'll still preach it. I did notice there's a turn though with it when some of these kids would get that they would, uh, they're like, okay, yes, Jesus did it all. I'm forgiven. I'm saved, etc. But like, but like how, do I stop worshiping something? Like, how do I, like, how does porn stop being more attractive to me than God? Like, how do I get God to be more beautiful to my heart and be liberated by his grace or whatever it is? And I think there was a, there was a change in that. Some of them felt like, okay, there's nothing I can do. So do I just sit here and not do anything? And, and when I do that, nothing seems to change. So maybe there's something I need to do. And so there's this questions like, how much can you tell a kid? Yeah, but yes, exactly. All that free grace, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. And at the same time, um, read your Bible, pray, get porn blockers on your computer, um, like do, do certain things, make certain efforts in order to lean into grace, in order to, you know, I, I come back to that phrase, uh, Dallas Willard said, grace is opposed to earning, not, not the effort. Um, and so and being able to tell them like, guys, you, you've also been given the Holy Spirit as, as well as, which means that you have the space to try to be holy, even as you know that, that your free justification and the free grace and all that gives you the space to try and fall and get up again and try and fall and get up again and take three steps and fall and then take four steps and fall. And I don't know so, so that giving them that back half vision of like, you're not trying to earn God's favor, but now that you have it, you, you can try to look like his son more because you've been given the spirit of his son. And I think 
that element of being able to preach that back half. I remember when I, I had a kid get it the other day that like I, I can make the decision to do certain things, not because I'm trying to earn, but because I'm trying to, and, and it was, it was, it was liberating to him to hear that and realize, oh yeah, like not earning, but effort that changes things by the spirit. I don't know. That's, maybe that's just my little, it's not maybe not your repentance. How do I know if I've repented question, but it is for me, the pastoral thing about what do I preach to the, to my students and what do I put forward to them? Um, so I certainly found that very liberating within my own experience, realizing that sanctification is not so much just something that I have to work up under my own strength as well, but it's something that I experience as a promise that on the last day I will be conformed to the image of Christ. And God has not left me to flounder before then, but he is producing the fruits of the spirit in me now. And he is working in me and I can take hold of that promise when I despair of sin in my life, when I wish that I could serve God better. I can take hold of that promise and hang on to it. It's not a matter of living by my own efforts or works, but a matter of hanging on to God's promise that he is doing a work in me and he will complete it. Um, and I find that tremendously liberating. So that's all very helpful. I, Andrew, we haven't heard from you in a while. Um, we're coming down here to the end, so I, I just want to make yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm, that I'm sitting and ruminating because I, I don't know which way to go on it. <laughs> whether, whether to reiterate the point I made at the start. I, I feel like maybe I, maybe I want to do that um, or maybe try and frame it in a slightly different way. That, we, that in, in, in convincing people of the, the, the accuracy and the robustness and the power of exactly what we're talking about, which is, yes, of course, grace, it comes to you and saves you when you do nothing, you're dead in your sins, it does nothing, you do nothing to deserve it, it's never a question of earning it back. But there is a working with the grace of God, and the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly ways and all that stuff. You, in order to convince people of that, I don't think you just need to read them the verses. I think there needs to be something in us, collectively, as those who would proclaim and model that kind of theology of sanctification that looks joyful and secure in the love of God at the same time as pursuing holiness. And I think often that is lacking. And I'm not just speaking to myself, although I am speaking to myself, but to whole chunks of Christianity where a, a, I think it, people, and it may be just because I'm a charismatic and our, our guys just process theology slightly differently. I'm, I'm not sure about that. But I, I think more widely, a lot of the people I would see, to go back to t someone like Tullian, who, who I see commenting on and really, way to go, Pastor, thank you so much. They're, what they're celebrating is somebody just told me something that sounded really, really liberating and happy and freeing. And there's something about the way that a lot of us reformed guys do and talk about sanctification that doesn't make it sound freeing and liberating and happy and i'm not talking about putting on fake smiles i just think i think there is something wrong there's something broodingly intense about the way that some of us personality wise are, are attracted to a particularly rigorous form of uh not asceticism but something that looks a bit like that in certain areas and i'm not talking about the college kid who's, who can't work out to stop porn him you need all the tools he's he, you can possibly give him including meditating on your justification but also lots and lots of other practical steps but i think we what we can do is sort of roll that out across almost everybody in the church community and the way that we do it and there can be a 
an insecurity and a lack of assurance and a lack of joy in the love of the Father and all that, which I think comes across to people who look at us and think, if that's what your theology of sanctification does to the, your faith, then I'm not sure it's as good as what this other guy is preaching, even though they might look at the text and see some of what we're saying. So I'd, I'd probably... That's with this, that would be my burden with a topic like this, is that I think theologically we probably all agree we go down the list of 15 questions that Kevin DeYoung raised, raised in the blog post that some, all of us have read about it. We'd say, yeah, I think I know how to answer all 15 of those things, and I think I'd be reasonably confident that we were right. But I think if that doesn't permeate through to a joy and a liberty and a freedom and security in God's unconditional love for us, which then causes us to be motivated to pursue him, but not because we're trying to get anything back, I don't think people will believe what we're selling and i think that's actually quite a significant challenge with the more theologically rigorous amongst us which is uh, probably going to include the four of us and many other people that listen to this you know uh and i'm going to chime in again there i hear that and and that is that is so pastorally true i've seen it myself in terms of okay when i preach sanctification is it is is it as freeing as the times when i'm preaching just that free justification of jesus paid it all um one of the guys, and I, I hate to do the hero uh, thing, but I, I'll just hold up and commend people listening to who does this well is Matt Chandler. Um, if you've listened to his sermons, I remember hearing he had a ten he had a ten week series on basically progressive sanctification called the Way, and it was like all these different areas of of sanctification where you know the word repentance, marriage, you know evangelism, and there was an element of like joy freedom tons of grace for the failures along the way uh as well as the real legitimate hope that no you you can grow in godliness and godliness is better than sin you know that 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 element of this is good it's hard but it's really really good um and i i think having look i i just throw that out there because we want this podcast to actually have practical payouts. And if the practical payout is you start listening and hearing somebody preaches sanctification well in a liberating way, well, then, then well, that's a win for me. So yeah. I'd say, I'd say that there, there is a way of doing it. It's possible. I've seen it and it, and it's it helped. Um, so, so I'm glad that you raised that pastoral issue. How do, how do you, how do we end up preaching this thing? So yeah, Alistair, did you have something? I think on that pastoral point is absolutely crucial because when we're talking about legalism within the New Testament, our tendency is to focus upon either attempts to ground our status with God upon law keeping or alternatively the claim that the Torah brings salvation. And yet much of what the New Testament talks about the law, particularly its fulfillment in the life of the Christian, is fighting against a sort of addition to God's requirements in a hyper-prescriptive manner or sometimes also a certain form of rhetoric that speaks to the Christian as someone who's commanded all the time rather than someone who's impelled by a deeper force, a force of love, of the work of the Spirit, or it can be a matter of losing sight of the weightier matter of the law in a focus upon the minutiae that we tend to focus upon um, issues in detachment from the fundamental driving principles of the Christian life. And so the manner of keeping the law is crucial, whether we talk in James about the perfect law of liberty or whether we talk with Paul in Romans about God fulfilling the law, it being weak through the flesh, but then it being um, fulfilled by those who walk according to the spirit. Or whether we talk with John about the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts and 
on account of that love, we love the brothers and we keep the commandments. And because of that love, the commandments are not burdensome. And if those commandments are burdensome, there's probably something wrong at a, at a deeper level. And it may not be with our formal doctrine of justification and sanctification. Rather, it can be just the manner of our obedience. And I think that's the thing that I would want to focus upon. So I think that's a really good point. And, and we really do need to wrap up here soon. soon. But it related to it. I think we don't understand how uh, life-giving obligations are, uh, how obligations on us are necessary for our flourishing because they evoke us, they, they call us out, and they expand us, they stretch us in directions that we may not go otherwise. And so the obligations that are upon us um, to live in certain ways are themselves the very substance of the life which Christ has for us. Um, I will never forget uh, when I was uh, in St. Louis, uh, I was on staff at a church and a, a homeless fellow came in to the office and we started talking to him and he had a dog and he began telling me a story about how he almost killed himself until this dog came up to him and he just knew that he was supposed to take care of this dog, that that's what he was supposed to do. And ever since then, for like five years, he'd been uh, keeping this dog uh, and feeding it and so on and so forth. And it occurred to me that um, what he needed in one sense was obligations. It was meaning, it was the, the, the real responsibility of doing good. And without the obligations which bring judgment and life, uh, and without seeing them as both things, I just think that we're actually leaving people uh, immature and uh, 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 allowing them to flounder in a mediocre type Christianity. And this bifurcation of obligations from the substance of the gospel is actually death to them. That's my final word. I think that's a great final word. I was having this conversation with uh, with somebody else uh, on, online the other day about obligations and owing. And, and there's just, I talked about the, the liberating, in a sense, as you said, obligation of loving my wife. I have to, because uh, I made a promise, and that's good. Because that, pro that promise pro propels me uh, into pursuing difficult moments sometimes that eventually lead to joy. And so um, that's that's part of the, the just the deep call of holiness and sanctification is is that obligation to pursue joy with abandon uh, and also with um, with obedience. So uh, with that, we do have to wrap this up. Uh, this this uh, episode of Mere Fidelity. We thank you again for listening in. And once again, as always, uh, please go ahead. If you like this, if you found this helpful, uh, share it around with your friends on your Twitter or Facebook or, or just, um, I don't know, I guess burn CDs. It's kind of old school. In any case, looking forward to uh, having uh, another episode with you guys again soon and, and, and grace and peace with you.